you know, speaking at uh, a teacher orientation is always a, a neat time for me. Um, obviously, I have a, a little history with this place. And so, um, you know, it, it's just amazing. I think uh, the Lord has been very gracious to me personally and to my family. Um, you know, when, it, when this church started a long time ago in a tent and was over in room 211 over there, you see those old pictures of all those people packed in there. Um, those people didn't know anything about most of us. They didn't know about me. <laughs> they didn't know about anything that was going to happen, really. They were just faithful and were doing what the Lord wanted them to do. And um, I think anticipating the future and hoping in the future and making wise decisions, looking toward the future. And I'm so thankful. And, and so many of you are a part of that, just in developing the church and uh, and looking forward to what God would do, and and the school as well. Um, you know, I went all the way through Timberlake Christian School, and now my kids are going there. Um, you know, I I served here as an intern a couple summers, and just very thankful for the people that God put in place who were able to uh, to to look forward and develop the ministry here. And uh, it's been such a blessing to me personally, and so. Uh, just want to praise the Lord for that. It's a, just been a good opportunity for me this week to think and reflect on that, um, you know, as, as my kids are, are headed back to school uh, at TCS, and I had the opportunity to speak to the teachers. So, uh, so thank you to so many of you that have been, been a part of that here. Um, it's a blessing. So um, tonight, I'm not going to go through a particular text. So uh, it's a topical message. Um, that I'll be bringing to you tonight, uh, which is, is a little bit different than I normally like to do, but that's all right. Um, this past summer, there was a sporting event that absolutely captured my attention and uh, I, I think captured the attention of a lot of people around the world. And it's a sporting event that only takes place once every four years. And maybe some of you are unaware that it even happened. Maybe some of you were like me, were absolutely captivated by it. Uh, but that sporting event was the World Cup, which is the ultimate soccer tournament. It's really the ultimate tournament of any sport, but it's the ultimate soccer tournament. Um, some of you don't appreciate soccer, don't like soccer, Pastor Farrell being one of them, and that's all right. That's, no worries. Sanctification will take place. It'll, it'll happen. It's all right. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Um, it's estimated that one billion people, somewhere in the neighborhood of one billion people, watched the final match of the World Cup between Germany and Argentina. One billion people. That's unfathomable that that many people would watch a sporting event. Uh, It really is an amazing event. It goes for about a month, and it's the type of event that draws nationalistic fervor from the people who are participating in it for sure and then from the fans who are watching it. Uh, Some of you, your heart will leap when I put this moment up on the screen. A beautiful thing. John Alley knows what I'm talking about here. Uh, This is the game-winning goal in the last few minutes when the USA opened the World Cup against Ghana. And I have to admit, I do not think I remained seated when this happened. I was jumping around very, very excited about what was taking place. Now, honestly, I like soccer, but I don't really get into the World Cup primarily because I'm this huge, devoted soccer fan. I played it growing up. I like it. I like to watch it. I hope my my kids are going to play it this fall and really do enjoy it. But I get into the World Cup, honestly, because 
uh, it's the opportunity to root for the good old USA against all of those other countries. And I just take great delight in that. It's, it's fun to do. Uh, I like how in some ways the country comes together around that and we cheer. And the guy who's making this header here, um, he was 21 years old and scored this goal and instantly became like a national hero in some people's minds for doing this. Um, but I love, I love my country, and this is one of the opportunities for me. The Olympics is like this as well, where I just really enjoy cheering for, uh, for my home country, for the United States of America. And in a much more serious way, I have to admit, there are certain moments in time where things will happen in the news, and you know, I, I just take great delight and great pride in the, the country that God has sovereignly placed me in and had me born into. Um, one of those just happened in, in recent weeks. Uh, I, I love the fact that they were Christians, first of all, but I love the fact that there were Americans over in Africa serving the people over there and working to try to help them with this whole Ebola outbreak that has happened. And I love even, even more probably the fact that when they got sick, our country said, hey, come back, we'll bring you back, and we're going to treat this thing, and we're going to take care of you. And my heart just swells with pride. We take care of our own, and I love that about the USA. Um, it's just a really, really neat thing for that to happen. And I, this, this may be a pretty American thing to say in some ways, but I feel like, yeah, bring them back. We'll whip this Ebola thing. We're Americans. That's what we do, right? I mean, there's been lots of situations in the past where We've pretty much taken care of that. We're all right with that. We put a man on the moon 45 years ago, all right? We know how to handle things here in the United States of America. Um, and I think there are some characteristics of the United States and of, really of our American culture that properly reflect and I think cultivate the image of God in people that, that grow up here and that live in this culture. Um, there are some, some character qualities that I think are embedded in our nationalistic culture that are very, very helpful to human flourishing, let's say. Americans are creative, generally. We're hardworking. We're honest. Those are some of the, the qualities that you just think of, I mean, that I think of when I think of Americans. Um, we, we're courageous. Uh, Americans are generally industrious and creative. Um, we, you know, there's an independent mindset, I think, that gets us in trouble sometimes, but that mindset is also very, very helpful in cultivating, um, cultivating creation, in developing lots of things, medicine, um, you know, just across the map. I think we're, we're pretty good at that and uh, pretty forward thinking and, uh, and innovative. And those are, those are really good qualities to have. I think those are qualities that properly reflect the image of God. In, in us. And I said before about Timberlake, but I, I mean this as well as far as living in the United States. I think God has been very kind to me to allow me to be born during this time period and in this country. It's just a gift of grace from him to me personally. Now, despite all of that, despite all the good that we receive from living here and being in this culture, we don't want to imagine that everything is good and everything is perfect and there's nothing in this culture that we need to be concerned about because I think there's a lot that we need to be concerned about. 
There are certain ideas embedded within our culture and certain patterns of living and thinking that shape us and make us into a certain kind of person that I don't think is properly reflecting the image of God. Um, These patterns of thinking and patterns of living shape us in very much the wrong direction. And without us even realizing it, they push us in the wrong direction. And many times we don't even recognize that. Uh, we're not even aware of what's happening to us because it's, it's the culture we live in. There's this classic story that's told, maybe you've heard this before, about these two young fish who are swimming in the pond one morning. And they're swimming along, maybe on their way to work. And this older fish is swimming along in the opposite direction And they notice him coming. And as the older fish approaches the two younger fish, he says to them, good morning, boys. How's the water? Well, the two younger fish swim by him. And as they get by him, one of the younger fish looks at the other one and says, what is water? And I think that illustrates a point for us very well that we exist in American culture and Many times we don't even notice. We're not even aware of what's happening to us, and we need to be aware of what's happening to us. And so this evening I want to draw your attention to just one aspect of Western culture, of American culture, that I think has profoundly shaped our spiritual lives, uh, and I think it's done that in a negative direction. I, I read a blog article A few weeks ago, and it was written by a pastor uh, who was pastoring for the last eight years in Grand Cayman, which is one of the islands in the Caribbean. Uh, And he'd been pastoring there for eight years, and he's coming back to the United States to plant a church in the Washington, D.C. area. And so as he's coming back to the U.S., he's been out of the culture for quite a while, and he's coming back to the U.S., and he said he was going to write a series of blog articles just kind of explaining some of the things that he realized as he came back to the United States. Um, Some of the things that that really shocked him about coming back into American culture and that he had kind of lost while he was away from, from living in the U.S. And the first article he wrote was surprising to me, and it was the one thing that stood out to him above everything else. And I'm going to read you a section of, of this blog article that he wrote. Here's the first thing I notice about living in the States again. Commercials. Well, truthfully, I didn't notice them. My seven-year-old son, Titus, noticed them. All of them. Here's the thing. In Cayman, Grand Cayman, where he was ministering, we never had cable or watched network television. We relied on DVDs, Netflix, or something on Apple TV. This meant commercials never interrupted our programming not even during the annual commercial feast called the Super Bowl. Since Titus was born in Cayman, his entire seven years of life have been lived in our commercial-free Siberia. But coming back to America means he has a Saturday full of commercials. He's exposed constantly to product pitches and appeals. I wondered why all of a sudden he kept insisting that we had to have a new mop with hurricane spin or why he began asking me for just 14.95 plus shipping and handling today right now or else we might miss out 
And then he goes on to talk about that experience of moving back. And then close to the end, he gives this paragraph that I think is so insightful. Here's one other thing I see again for the first time. American Christians are pretty consumeristic with their churches and spiritual habits. We're not just consumeristic. We also want it custom made to suit us. That's no new revelation. I'm simply seeing it again. And I'm wondering if we ever see how deep a root it has in us if we never get outside our context. And if we never see how strongly our desires, often unspoken or unconscious, affect us. Might this be a silent killer? Might worldliness expressing itself in quiet, unchecked consumption be the besetting sin of the church? That's pretty powerful, pretty insightful there. And most of us don't even notice, I think, how often we're hit with advertising and with the plethora of choices that we have to make all the time. And I think that those that number of choices and the plethora of commercials and ads that we have hitting us all the time, I think those things change the way we live life. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with marketing and with advertising, but I think it can shape our souls in a direction that that makes us consumer minded people. I did a search uh, in preparation for this on the Babies R Us website. And I just typed the word stroller into the Babies R Us website. If you don't know, you should be able to figure out what Babies R Us is by the name. It's a big, giant baby and child thing store, okay? Babies R Us, I found out by doing this search for stroller that in that store alone, there are 1,143 boys strollers. Boys strollers. And... There are 1,184 girls' strollers listed. Good luck choosing the right one. Talk about paralyzing. I just want to click off the website as soon as I see that. That's crazy to have to choose from that group. In our culture today, it's no longer sufficient for someone to ask us just to pick up some milk at the store you got to be a little more specific than that nowadays, right? Um, I, w- I was at the store the other day, and I heard this guy next to me asking if Kroger carried almond soy milk. And I don't know a lot about milk, but I'm pretty sure almond and soy are two distinct things that normally are separate. But he was asking if they were combined together in one half gallon of milk. And then... When we ask about stuff like that or when we look for stuff like that, when something, when they don't have it, when Kroger doesn't have what we're looking for, we call Randy Ellis and complain. (laughs) No. When Kroger doesn't have what we're looking for, then we're flabbergasted. How can you not carry organic, low-fat almond milk from southwest Oregon? I mean, seriously, you guys don't carry that? That's, what are you even doing in the grocery business? And I think that this emphasis and this pervasive consumer culture shapes and influences us as believers in profound and deep ways. And just like those fish in water, we don't even realize it. 
I think it gets into our, our, our brains and it gets into our hearts and it shapes us spiritually as much as anything else. And there are two ways that I think this shapes us uh, and two kind of areas that I want to walk through with you tonight. And then at the end, I'm going to give you a couple of strategies to fight against this. All right. We'll get the soccer picture off there. But there's kind of two ways that I think this consumer mentality shapes our spiritual lives. And the first one of those ways uh, is that I think it shapes us in the way that we approach church. And in the way we approach choosing a church, we are so used to, and again, there's nothing inherently wrong with having 1,000 strollers to choose from, right? I mean, I love the fact that I can choose which car I want and be specific about it. But I'm saying that pattern of thinking gets into our souls and it shapes the way we go about choosing a church, We are so used to doing that on a daily basis that when we get to church on Sunday or when we choose a church body to be a part of, man, we think the exact same way about choosing a church. We spend all week searching Amazon. And I mean, what can't you find on Amazon? Maybe you ladies spend all week looking at Pinterest and looking for the perfect flower vase for you. And there's nothing wrong with Pinterest. But when you do that, when you go to Walmart and you can literally get almost anything you can imagine and it's right there and you can have it home in 15 minutes, when you do that week in and week out all the time, that becomes the way in which you live your life. And that becomes the way in which you approach church life as well. We're so used to picking out exactly what we want and having it exactly when we want it that we think the same thing about our lives in the body of Christ. I've heard people talk about moving to Lynchburg and spending five or six years finding a church. And I, I think, honestly, that's just the natural result of this consumer mindset is we just there's it's not exactly what I'm looking for. And we're so used to these this plethora of choices that it, it just overflows into our church life. I mean, If the pastor's preaching isn't exactly what I'm looking for, or if he doesn't shake my hand in the way that I want him to week in and week out, or if the music is not exactly my taste, why would I want to stay here? Why would I want to choose to go to this church? If it doesn't fit my taste perfectly, I'll just go elsewhere. No problem. I'm used to doing that. I can float around for five or six years and never plug into a church body at all. And so rather than basing our choices of church and how we do church on that mindset, we need to obviously base our choices on the unchanging values and principles of the word of God. And we so often live in this consumer mindset that when the church doesn't offer something that's specifically what we want, we react the same way as when they don't have the milk that we're looking for. We're flabbergasted. What do you mean you're not doing it this way? (laughs) What do you mean the pastor's not preaching this way? And we're frustrated by that. And honestly, it totally makes sense that it would be like that. And then when we do pick churches based on our own preferences, rather than the unchanging principles of God's word, what normally happens is we end up picking churches and congregating with people who are exactly like us. 
We gather with people who see things the same way we do and where everything's comfortable and everything is exactly fitted to my tastes. A consumer doesn't go into a store in order to serve the other shoppers in the store. A consumer-minded Christian doesn't go to church in order to edify the body and in order to serve other people. A consumer-driven Christian goes to church in order to have his or her needs met. Because of that, we typically choose and are drawn to churches that fit our tastes almost perfectly. And where there are people who are exactly like us. I mean, let's be honest. It gets really uncomfortable and difficult to gather with people who think differently than we do about things. They have different preferences than we do. Um, It gets really uncomfortable when I have to talk through an issue with someone who thinks differently than I do, but is really well versed in why they think what they think. That gets uncomfortable at times. And in our consumer driven culture, I don't really want to do that a lot of times. I mean, that's pretty inefficient and it's tough to to actually have to talk through issues with people and and relate to people that way. I'd rather just take the easy route and and pick what church I'm going to pick based on on my preferences. And so I think the consumer mentality affects how we relate to one another in the church and how we choose a church to attend. But I think also the second way that it sort of seeps into our souls is I think this mentality bleeds over into our personal walk with the Lord. And this is incredibly damaging to us. We treat personal growth and sanctification, a lot of times we treat those things like we shop for products on Amazon. We expect to get some new curriculum or some new sermon series or some new Christian product that will suddenly revolutionize our spiritual lives and now everything will be set and everything will be perfect and I will be walking with the Lord and the rest of my Christian life will go smoothly. Because we're so used to looking for that one product that's going to solve my, my needs and desires that we think the same way about spiritual growth. It's like a new book or a new sermon series is going to suddenly propel us to godliness. And you know... It just doesn't work like that. Scripturally, it's not supposed to work like that. Growth and sanctification, those are things that happen slowly, almost imperceptibly over time. I mean, it happens week in and week out as you sit under the word, as you speak the truth and love to other believers, as you have good conversations with others, as you sing praises to the Lord. That's how sanctification and growth happens. And this consumer culture places a terrible burden on us as believers. And it it says that we always have to have this mountaintop experience in in our spiritual lives. And it's always got to be the best thing ever, my experience of the Christian life. And there's there's really no room for, for struggling in the process of sanctification. And there's no room for for slow and painful growth that happens over a number of years. And so because of that, we sort of go from teaching to teaching and from church to church and idea to idea. And we're always looking for the thing that's going to make it all okay. 
my wife Bethany and I have been reading this book over the past six months or so called Good News for Anxious Christians. And in the book, he, uh, he talks a lot about this consumer mentality. And there's this, this paragraph that is wonderful that I want to read to you that really addresses uh, what I'm talking about tonight. I'll put it on the screen if you, can, if you can see that. If not, just listen. The church, when it's not seduced by consumerist spirituality, is in the business of cultivating ordinary Christians. People who are united to Christ by faith and are in it for the long haul, like people in a good marriage. It transforms people not by giving them life-changing experiences, but by repetition, continually telling the story of Christ so that people may hear and take hold of him by faith. For we do not just receive Christ by faith once at the beginning of our Christian lives and then go on to do the real work of transformation through our good works. We keep needing Christ the way hungry people need bread, and we keep receiving him whenever we hear the gospel preached and believe it. So what transforms us over the long haul is not one or two great life-changing sermons, although these can be helpful from time to time, but the repeated teaching and preaching of Christ, Sunday after Sunday, so that we never cease receiving him into our hearts. And thankfully, that's what many of you have experienced over the years. Faithfully, Sunday after Sunday, together we are ordinary Christians who are trying to grow to become more like Jesus Christ. And so that's the diagnosis tonight. That's the the description of the danger of this consumeristic mentality. And I know that when I go through this, I can see it so easily influencing my spiritual life. And so I want to give you a couple of ways this evening to combat this. Right? How in the world do we battle this worldly tendency that, that fashions us to be spiritual consumers? Because that's what it does. It shapes our heart in a particular direction. Well, I talked about the fish swimming earlier, not realizing what water was. If we're swimming in the water of consumerism all week long and all of our lives long, then we need to immerse ourselves in a different pond from time to time. And there are a couple of those that I want to give you tonight that will hopefully help you in this battle because it is a fight for your soul every day, day in and day out. So... Here's those. Rather than immersing ourselves in the consumeristic culture, first of all, we need to immerse ourselves in the story of the Bible. Listen, we all make choices. We all live our lives based on a narrative that we believe, on a story. You may not think about that often, but in the back of your mind, driving everything you do is a story that you believe about the world. Many times it's imperceptible, but it's there and it's shaping the choices that you're making day in and day out. And in the culture we live in, our entire lives, we've been told the story that we are consumers We've been told the story that we exist on this earth in order to buy new things, consume things, and then buy more new things. And that's the way to satisfaction 
and delight. And that's the way to live the good life. That's the story we've been told. Commercials on television preach the gospel of consumerism. This is the good news. Man, if you get this product, everything's going to be better for you. A trip to the mall, there's nothing wrong with going to the mall, but be aware that a trip to the mall tells you that without this new pair of shoes or without these jeans, can you really expect to live the good life? I mean, seriously. You can't really think that you're going to live the good life without this pair of jeans that have holes in them that are ripped up. When you think about the story in which you live, the worldview that you have, a worldview is certainly a set of principles, but it's not only that. It's this background story in which you live. And you see yourself participating in that story day in and day out. And what we need to do is we need to immerse ourselves in the story of the Bible. We need to immerse ourselves in a counter-cultural story so that we more and more begin to believe what the Bible says about reality and about ourselves and about who we are. We need to soak in the story that is true. Listen, you are not a consumer primarily. That is not who you are. The culture is lying to you about that. And so we all need to go back to this story and immerse ourselves in the biblical narrative, the worldview that is Scripture. Uh, One author, James Hamilton, had this to say about Scripture's story. We make sense of our days in light of this overarching narrative. Man, that's so good. That's so helpful. The big plot of the Bible, with its guarantee of resurrection and new creation, gives confidence even in the face of death. The Bible's big story opens the windows on stale, stuffy rooms of deadlines and due dates, deaths and disappointments, and fresh winds of the creation to new creation breezes blow through. When you... Know that you're in the midst of this gigantic story that God is unfolding through Jesus Christ in his plan of redemption. That is life giving. And so often we immerse ourselves by our own choosing and even not by our choosing in the story that this world is telling rather than immersing ourselves in the life giving story, the joy giving story that is the Word of God, and the narrative that it is telling about us, about God, about what He's accomplishing. When we do that, then our daily struggles will make sense in light of the big picture, of the entire story. But we have to immerse ourselves in the right story. It has to be the story that matches up to reality, and that story is given to us very clearly in scripture. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. I want to quickly walk you through a, a couple of passages here to show you this. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 17. This is what Paul says. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do 
in the futility of their minds. Now, stop for a second there. Your walk in Scripture is more than just your personal time with the Lord in the morning. Okay? Your walk in Scripture is the entire pattern and structure of your life. It's what you love. It's everything you do. It's your habits. It's the daily activities that you engage in. And hopefully and obviously, that includes your walk with the Lord. Unbelievers' walks, you can see from this verse, are patterned after the story of the culture around them. He says that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Your pattern and structure of life no longer should be characterized by the same things that their lives are characterized by. Their way of seeing reality is fundamentally flawed. It's off. And you can see what he says. They walk in the futility, the vanity of their minds. Their way of seeing the world is not accurate, and ultimately it doesn't make sense to live your life in that particular way. Look at verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. And you can see in verse 18, it's because of their alienation from the life of God, from the plan and the experience of God and the purposes of God. It's their alienation from all of that, from who God is, that they're darkened in their understanding and their perception of the world around them. Now, when you live that way, it has tragic consequences. Verse 19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. When you live based on the wrong narrative, on the wrong view of the world, when you live in the futility of your mind, there are tragic consequences. You end up living based on sensuality and greed, and you end up practicing those things, and it just becomes normal to you. I mean, this is the way, in in your mind, this is the way the world works. This is the way it's supposed to be. This is the story of reality, and that ends up being, being normal life for you. And when you live that way, you're ruled by your own desires and not by Scripture and not by the right story that the Bible gives to us. But look at verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Everything is different for the believer. Verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Jesus is the center of our story. He's the center of the Bible, and he has to be the center of everything we do. Now, there's two different views of the world that are given there. There's a view that leads to futility and vanity, and there's a view of Christ where he is the center that we've learned. And here's where the fight comes in. Verse 22. You're you're taught as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Man, you put on that new story, you immerse yourself in that story of Scripture that becomes your reality 
and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Those are dramatic results because you think differently than the culture around you because you immerse yourself in the true story, which is where Jesus Christ is the center. Here's what I told the college students a few weeks ago. And there was only a few in there before they all came back today. You know what our problem is? My problem, honestly, I just don't know my Bible very well. I don't immerse myself in this story. Some of you are thinking, come on, Nathan. I mean, this is the Sunday night crowd, right? I mean, after all, we're here. We're here to listen to preaching on a Sunday night. So what are you talking about? We don't. I don't. I do not immerse myself in the story of Scripture. I don't know the content of my Bible very well. And this is something we all need to do. Read Scripture. Read it. Read it often. Read to know content. Read big sections of your Bible. Sit down and read the Gospel of Mark straight through. The whole thing. Get the big picture of Mark. 16 chapters. Won't take you very long at all. Read the Gospel of John, 21 chapters. And if you're really feeling spiritual, read Genesis. 50 chapters, but man, they are awesome chapters. Wonderful stories that describe the plan of God as we've been learning about on Sunday mornings. I think the, the, the Bible is not captivating to us because we honestly just don't know what's in it. We're just not even aware of what's there. Oh, the Bible's boring. Do you even know what's in there? Do I even know what's in there? Read, read, read the Bible. And I know sometimes when I say that, it, it just doesn't sound very efficient to do that. It, sometimes when you, when you sit down and you read, you may feel like you don't get your money's worth. When I wait a minute. There's that consumer mentality coming back in there again. Is this really going to be worth my time, worth my time to invest myself in this book and reading a book that's thousands of years old in big chunks? Is that really going to be worth my time? Read to know and read to enter the biblical world because that's what's going to save you and your spiritual life from the culture around you. Now, Not only do we have to do that, we immerse ourselves in the story of the Bible, but the second way that we battle this consumer mentality is we immerse ourselves in the community of exiles. Turn in your Bibles over to 1 Peter. First Peter. Now, Peter here is writing to believers who are suffering at the hands of a very pagan culture. Hmm. That sounds pretty applicable to things that are happening in the world today, to even the way that our cultural atmosphere is headed. So this might be a pretty helpful book for us. And what's what I love about First Peter is that he constantly uses this, this motif, this picture of believers as exiles. And I think he does that because that's the way he wants believers to live and to relate to the culture around them. 
First Peter chapter one. Let's go down to verse 17. Now, in the previous verses, he's told us to be obedient children, to to be holy as God is holy. All right. And now in verse 17, he explains that a little bit more and what that holiness looks like. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Why exiles? Why does he use that that picture here of believers? Well, an exile is someone who lives in a foreign culture. They're outside of their homeland. And. A lot of times an exile will live for a long time in a foreign culture and they end up trying to do good in that culture and they end up participating in the culture in many ways and they end up blessing and helping the culture out in a lot of ways. But an exile also knows that his permanent citizenship is not in the culture that he's currently living in. And how applicable is that for us? I mean, that's who we are. We live in this culture. We live in a consumer driven culture, but we do not adopt the habits, the mindsets of the current culture that we're living in. I mean, we attempt to do good to those around us. We try to bless them. We try to be a blessing to them. But ultimately, we do not identify ourselves primarily as citizens of the current culture we're living in. And so I think what that means for us, I think what Peter would tell us, is that when we understand ourselves as exiles, what we have to do is we have to find a group of exiles and we have to get together with them and we have to identify with them and we have to get together and talk about the homeland and and look forward to going back to the homeland. And we have to talk about the culture of the homeland. And we have to immerse ourselves in that culture, in the story of the homeland. And we have to do that together. And together we try to do good in the culture we're in. But ultimately, as we come together with that group of exiles, we're looking forward to and expecting that one day together we're all going to be back in the homeland. And that's going to be a glorious thing. Uh, One of my favorite authors, Carl Truman, wrote this in a magazine article recently talking about the church as as exiles. He said this to retain an identity in the face of a hostile culture. One must belong to a vibrant community of people who know who they are. This is the New Testament pattern of Christianity. When we hear in clear and unequivocal words who we are declared to us in the sermon each week and when we participate in liturgical action embodying that identity and and what he means is all the the normal things we do in the worship service together the singing the reading of scripture the prayer times all of that the pattern that we do week in and week out even coming together all of that points us toward our homeland together when we do that we are well prepared for the hostile liturgies and gospels of the world we encounter from Monday to Saturday. Look down in First Peter at chapter 2 and verse 11. Peter says again, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, the desires of the flesh. 
Why? Because they wage war against your soul. This battle against consumerism is a battle for your soul. These passions and desires are waging war against your soul and my soul week in and week out. And the war is often subtle. It's deceitful. And many times we don't even know that we're in the conflict. But it's happening all the time. We have to be aware and we have to be on guard against this. And instead of floating along the cultural stream, look what Peter says in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good works or good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I think the assumption here is, is they will speak evil of you, but you live in such a way with a loving mindset that when they do that, it just doesn't make sense because of your mentality, because of the culture, the homeland culture that you're bringing to the current culture you're living in. So let me leave you with two thoughts as we end this evening. First of all, be aware of the water you're swimming in. Don't find yourself asking, what is water? Be aware of the water you're swimming in. Be on guard. Work together with others. Think carefully about the subtle influences of the culture in which we live because they're waging war against our souls. And then finally, it's so important that we intentionally place ourselves in other currents, in other ponds, in other streams of thinking and of being in the world the church and scripture. We, we have to get out of the water of the culture from time to time. And this gathering is one of those times. We come together. We enjoy fellowship with one another. We hear the word taught. We hear a, a talk from the homeland's perspective. And we enjoy that. And then we turn around and we don't stay within this group. We go back out into the culture. And we, we seek to do good and ultimately, we take the message of the homeland to people that desperately need it out in the culture. And we share the good news that there is a better story that you can live in and you can immerse yourself in. And you don't have to live under these passions and these desires your entire life. You can live in the story that, that Jesus Christ is the center of. So do that this week. Begin again the fight against these these mindsets that are so pervasive in our consumer culture. Use Scripture, immerse yourself in Scripture, and immerse yourself again in the church body week in and week out.